When I graduated from Dallas Seminary in 1977, I was a 26-year-old Yankee from Greenport, Long Island, New York, not yet an official Texan, but heading in that direction. I was not only excited to get out and be done, but incredibly thankful for the education that I had received, but even more excited for future ministry. I was single, I was enthusiastic, I was well-trained, I was eager to serve, I filled out all the forms of the placement office at Dallas Seminary, I sent out letters and resumes to pastors I knew, and I went on interviews, and I had high hopes for success. But he's got high hopes, he's got high hopes, he's got high apple pie in the sky hopes. And then I got responses. Here were some of the responses that I got from interviews and letters that I sent. Well, you're not God's man for this church because you're not married. Well, you're too young. You don't have enough experience. We just don't think you're a good fit for this church. Now, I must admit that initially, none of those negative responses fazed me. But then I began to wonder, as six months dragged into 12 months, which went into two years, which went into four years, was I really qualified? My expectation and anticipation waned. I won't say that I lost hope, but I certainly had less And it's not like I was sitting around doing nothing during this four-year interval of time. I worked for a contractor building homes, and I started my own wallpaper hanging business. I I got married. I taught a Bible study. I enjoyed all of my friends. It was an incredibly wonderful time. But I began to doubt. Did I have the ability? Was I qualified? Had I made the right choice in going to seminary? Should I have chosen a different career path? Maybe I should pursue something else. High hopes became low hopes, despite all the good things that were happening in my life. I was healthy. I was employed. I was married. I was having fun with all the different activities and friends. But full-time ministry was looking more and more like a pipe dream than a reality. The question that I begin to ask myself then and even continue to do so now when those kinds of things happen, when my hopes are not fulfilled, is not, is God going to give me what I want, but am I going to trust God and be faithful to God when I have to wait, when I can't seem to find the way to the next path and the next road? And I suspect that if we're honest, every one of us have had similar types of experiences where something caused us to lose hope. Perhaps for you, it was looking for the dream job, and you're still looking. Perhaps for you, it's looking forward to getting married, and you can't find the right mate. Perhaps for you, it's married, and you really want to have children, but they don't seem to come along. 
Perhaps for you, it's healing of an illness that doesn't seem to dissipate. Perhaps for you, it's the breaking of a bad habit that you can't seem to overcome. And in the midst of the uncertainties, in the midst of the difficulties, what's going to keep hope alive? Hope that encourages you to remain faithful to God, to love him, to endure well so that at the end, when you stand in the presence of Jesus, you really will hear him say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Despite your doubts, despite your failures, despite your uncertainties, well done. This morning, I want to try to answer that question from a text in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 there reminds us that God provides us with the resources that will keep us hopeful and living with hope in the midst of the ups and downs of life, in the midst of the uncertainties of life, and even in the midst of our failures in life. And as you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, let me give you a little bit of background to the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is written by an author whom we're not sure who wrote it, but it's written to people who are facing hardship and persecution because of their faith in Christ. They're tempted to think that God has forgotten them. They're tempted to think that this whole sense of following Jesus may not be all that it's cracked up to be. The vast majority of them have come out of a Jewish background. The vast majority of them had been um, involved in Judaism and all the rituals that were involved with that. And they're thinking, you know, maybe it would be better if we just went back to what we know. It's safer, it's easier, the persecution will lessen, and we can live there. This whole sense of diligent pursuit of knowing God, maybe we can just kind of drift along. So the writer, in writing to these believers, wants to encourage them. He wants to equip them with hope so that even in the midst of their doubts and their uncertainty and their fears, they would continue to live with a joyful attitude. It's as if they were hearing the whispers like we do sometimes of the evil one. You trusted Christ and look where this got you. Would a loving God really leave you where you are and not fulfill your dreams? Does God really care? And so the writer is urging them, instilling in them biblical hope, not just a positive, cheerful smile and ignore everything, but a steady attitude of joy based on the promises of God because he wants them to grasp what he calls in verse 11, the full assurance of hope. And the reason that these believers in their situation and we in ours can have that full assurance of hope is that God is the God of hope who not only makes promises, but keeps promises, guarantees his promises, and secures his promises. So the writer takes an illustration out of the tradition of the readers to whom he's writing. And he brings them back to the Old Testament he talks about Abraham. And beginning in verse 13, he reminds them of a promise that God made to Abraham. Notice what it says in verse 13, Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. 
Surely I will bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. God promised to Abraham a land and a seed. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you all of this land that's going to be for your family, and I'm going to increase your family, and it's going to be as large as the sand on the seashore. You won't be able to count them. So the promise is given to Abram at that time. And what do you think was going through Abram's mind when he heard God, the Almighty, give him that promise? Wow. I'm going to have an incredibly beautiful place to live. And I'm going to have a large and wonderful family. But what happened? Nothing. Abram moved, sure. He took his family out of his normal environment and took them to a land they'd never seen before in a place they'd never been. And then he waited for 24 years. No children. When Abram was 99, the Lord reaffirms his promise to multiply him exceedingly and he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. No kids. How can you be a father of multitudes at 99 with no children? The promise still remained. But Abraham's having a really difficult time believing that God's actually going to fulfill that promise. So he and Sarah concocted a plan on their own that maybe he could have children with somebody else. That did not turn out well, even today. But God has made promises to Abraham that took a long time to fulfill and God makes promises to us. Think for a minute. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. God has granted us precious and magnificent promises so that by them we, come, we become partakers of the divine nature. I want you to think with me just for a few minutes about some of the precious and magnificent promises that God has made to you, to us, to those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about this. There is therefore now no condemnation to the ones in Christ. None. Not when you fail, not when you succeed. There is no condemnation. I will love you forever. You will always be my son or my daughter. I will always forgive you, even if you keep coming back with the same request to please help me deal with this issue. I will always be with you. I promise never to leave you. I promise to bring you to glory. I promise victory over sin even though it doesn't seem that way in the midst of your experience. And I promise to hear you. Promise after promise after promise is given to us just like God gave promises to Abraham. And the promises that God made to Abraham are promises that he guaranteed for Abraham and in much the same way, God guarantees the promises that he makes to us. Notice what happens next. He says, I've made the promise. And then he guarantees the promise in verse 16. For men, 
swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. When men, women, people make agreements, they will get someone to notarize that agreement. You know, that firms it up. That's the oath. They sign it. Somebody else notarizes it. That says, I'm going to keep my part of this particular agreement. Even in the legal system, we do that. Whether people believe in God or have any knowledge of the Bible whatsoever, they still come into court. And when they're asked to testify, they have to swear. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's their oath. They're making an agreement saying, this is what I agree to do to tell the truth. God does the same. Isn't it amazing that God who cannot lie, who doesn't have to, who always tells the truth, still takes an oath? And since there's no one greater than God to swear by, he swears by himself. I will keep my promises. So that when God made his covenant, his agreement with Abraham, he became the one responsible to keep the covenant. In Abraham's day, when men made agreements for sale of land or any other kind of agreement that they were working on, it was not unusual for them to solidify or finalize that agreement with a sacrifice of animals. And what they would do is they would bring an animal and they would kill it, but then they would literally cut that animal in half. And half of it would go on one side of a path and the other half would go on this side of the path. And then the two who had made the agreement would walk between these animals, signifying that a sacrifice had been made and we are in total agreement with the contract for the sale of this land that we have made together. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, the scriptures remind us it was only God who walked between the sacrifices. Notice how the text reads. Let me read for you from Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. The Lord said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Abram says, how do I know that? Oh, Lord God, how do I know that I'm going to possess this? How can I be certain that the promise you made will come to fruition? The Lord said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought all these things to him and they cut them in two and they laid each half opposite the other. Now, he didn't cut the birds. The birds of prey came upon the carcasses. Abram drove them away. And when the sun was setting, deep sleep fell upon Abram. So you have the setting. You got the picture, right? Here it is. Sacrifices have been made. Animals have been placed on one side or the other. They're about to walk through and Abraham falls asleep. Pick up the text, verse 17. 
It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Abram was asleep and God made a covenant as he alone walked between the sacrificial animals. God says, I alone am responsible to keep the promise that I've made to you. And I've committed myself to it by making this agreement. And obviously that would encourage Abraham. When he woke up, he'd go, wow, God walked through this. That would be incredible encouragement to Abraham for him to be faithful, to believe that what God was going to do, what God had promised to do, he would do. But note who ultimately become the benefits of the promises that God makes and guarantees. Look at verse 17. God was desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. Therefore, he interposed with an oath. So the real question to ask is, who are the heirs of promise? We might think that the heirs of the promise are just Abraham's seed. You know, Abraham's biological family, those who become generation after generation, they are the heirs of promise. But according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, anyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ is the heir of promise. That means you're the heir of the promise. The promise of the coming Messiah. The promise that the Messiah has come. The promise that the Messiah has died on the cross for your sins. The promise that the Messiah is the one who was buried and was raised and is coming again. You and I are heirs of the promise. And so the heirs of the promise are designed to be encouraged by the oath that God has taken even to Abraham. And so the writer says, so that, in verse 18. Here's the purpose statement. Here's the reason that God wants us to be encouraged and interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that's the promise and the oath, by two unchangeable things, we who are heirs of the promise, we who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, (coughs) would be greatly encouraged to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Why? Because it's impossible for God to lie. We know that the guarantee that God made to Abraham and the guarantee that God makes to the promises he gives to us will happen because God cannot lie. It's against his character. He is either true or he's not. And if he's true, he cannot lie. So when God says, I love you, he really does. When God says, I forgive you, he really does. When God says, I hear you when you cry out to me, he really does. When God says, there is no condemnation to you who are my child, he really means that. God makes promises and he secures those promises with a guarantee. 
and having secured that promise with a guarantee, he secures it with his son. He solidifies it. This hope, he says in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not gonna spend a lot of time, we're not gonna spend any time talking about Melchizedek. If that's a real interest of yours, you'll have to miss the contemporary worship service and go to Rob Armstrong's class, adult Bible class, because he's going through the book of Hebrews and he'll clarify all those for you. What I want you to notice this morning is the words that are attached to hope in verse 19. Notice he says, this hope we have. He doesn't say this hope you might get someday. This hope is something that maybe, possibly is yours. Or this hope is reserved for a certain segment of the population who really follow me faithfully. Or this is hope is something you once had but now you've lost. Doesn't say any of that. What it says is this hope we have. And the hope you have is like an anchor. It is sure. It is steadfast. And it's so sure and steadfast, it's actually in glory itself. Because the anchor himself is Jesus. The anchor of our hope, the anchor of our soul is Christ himself. This verse provides an incredible illustration of our security. It's when Jesus Christ entered glory, when he was ascended, he took our hope, if you will, our future reward with him, our glorification, our inheritance, our full salvation, and he took it with him. And since he is now the high priest who sits in the very presence of God, in the throne room of God interceding on our behalf, he has our hope with him. And therefore, we have an anchor. It's sure. It's steadfast. It cannot change. And therefore, we have hope and we can live with hope because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And so the writer says our hope is like an anchor to a ship. An anchor was used for a lot of different things in the first century ships. Obviously, it was used to secure the ship and keep it from drifting away. So one of the analogies about having Jesus as our anchor when we really have the hope of the anchor of Christ in our hearts and lives, we don't drift away from him. It keeps us secure. But there's another use of the anchor that was also common in those days. Because in order for those larger ships who were only propelled by sails to get into a safe harbor, they often had to go through a small channel. And on either side of the channel were sandbars and rocks. And so if a gust of wind came along while the sails were up, it could easily blow the ship against the rocks or get stuck on the sandbar. So in order to prevent that, they would lower all the sails They would take the anchor from the ship and they would put it into a smaller boat. Then some men would get into the smaller boat and they would row that boat into the safe harbor. The anchor would still be attached to the ship by a long rope. And once they got into the harbor, they would take that anchor and anchor it in the harbor. And then those on the ship would grab the rope that was at the end of the ship and they would begin to pull on it. And as they pulled on it, it brought them safely into the harbor. Jesus is our anchor who will bring us safely to glory. 
He's the hope and the anchor of our souls. Because if you take this analogy of the anchor back to this text here in Hebrews chapter six, the writer says he's the forerunner. Jesus is the one who's gone first. He's gone onto the safe harbor, if you will. He's gone into the presence of God so that when doubt assails us, when storms rock us, when uncertainty is around us, Christ is our high priest forever because he lives, if you will, in the God room. He's sitting beside the Father. He's representing us to the Father. He's guaranteeing our safe arrival to his side. We have an anchor of the soul, a hope. It is sure and it's steadfast because it's a person. It's secured by the very person of Christ. Because hope is always sourced in God. I want you to look at another text with me, Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. It's a benediction at the end of the book of Romans. Um, But I want you to just look very briefly at this verse in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. And Paul says to the believers in Rome, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the end. Here's, and Romans has got incredible theology. As, as Paul is building up to the very end, he says, here's what I want. Here's my benediction. Here's my final words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Throughout scripture, God gives us names. Names that help us understand who he is. So we'll find names in scripture like El Shaddai. He's the Almighty. Names like Jehovah Jireh, the one who will provide. Names like Adonai, meaning Lord. Here, in Romans chapter 15, the name that's given to God is hope. God is, and he is at his very essence, the God of hope. Is there anything uncertain about God? Has God ever changed in his character? Has God ever failed to keep a promise? No, because God is certain and secure because he never changes. And that's why God is the God of hope. It's absolutely true what God promises. We can be sure and certain and guaranteed. And the result of being in this relationship with the God of hope, according to this text here in Romans 15, is that our lives are to be characterized by joy and peace. It's why Peter calls it in his letter that he writes, living hope. We've been born again by the mercies of God to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this present evil age in which you and I live, where disasters happen, where Christians suffer, where women are trafficked and children are exploited, where dreams die, where hopes fade, you and I can live with high hopes Not because we're ignoring all that stuff, because the Christian life, if grasped according to God's truth, is a magnificent obsession with hope. 
a hope that does not lead us into an escapist attitude, but the pursuit of life on a whole new dimension, joy and peace with abounding hope. Now, hope is always about the future because what do you hope for it if you already have it, says Paul in Romans 8. Now, hope is always about the future, but in reference to being about the future, it's designed to change the way we live today. It has an impact on our attitudes and our actions and our perspectives. That's why Paul can write here, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so that you can abound in hope, so that you live out a hopeful lifestyle in the midst of the life that you live. It's interesting to know that when John writes his short little epistle in the third chapter, he says, beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared what we will be. That is, we know we belong to God. We know we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We belong to him. But we're not exactly sure when Jesus comes back and when we meet him in glory exactly what we're going to be. But what we do know is that when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him just as he is. And what will it be to be like Jesus? Incredible that we're going to be like him in character, in understanding. And we're not sure what all of that means, but we do know that we're going to be like him. And notice what John says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as God himself is pure. See, the hope of knowing that we're going to be like Jesus is designed to transform the way we live today. It creates a lifestyle of godliness, of diligence, of joy and peace. So the writer to the Hebrews can say, back in Hebrews chapter six, that you would be sure and steadfast that you would endure, that you would have the full assurance of hope, that you would remain hopeful until the end and live out the hope that you have as an anchor of the soul, guaranteed by the person, secured by the person of Christ, guaranteed because God makes promises. Think of it from this perspective. If you have young children or have had young children, you know what it's like for your child to be afraid of the dark. Can you imagine as a parent when your child is afraid of the dark entering their bedroom at night and saying, you're right, it is dark, the sun has set, it's gonna stay dark, it won't get light until the morning, so suck it up, deal with it, have a good night's sleep. Now as a parent, we might like to say that, but that's not what we would say. If our child is really afraid of the dark, we would go into their room and we'd turn on the nightlight. See, it's not as dark as you think. We'd look under the bed to prove there are are no monsters under the bed. We'd open the closet doors and say, see, there are no monsters in the closet either. This is a safe place. This is an okay place. This is a place where you can rest and sleep. And you know what? If you really get afraid, we're right down the hall. And you can call us anytime and we'll come. Sleep tight. We'll see you in the morning. Because the role of the parent is to equip the child 
to understand how they can live in the darkness and be safe. And that's exactly what God does for us. He equips us with the hope based on his promises so that we can live in the darkness of the world that exists around us. He provides us with hope. Hope based on the promises of God who guarantees and secures those very promises. Therefore, we can live with high hopes. Now, obviously, these promises are made to those of us who have a personal relationship with Christ. If you're sitting here this morning or watching online and you have never personally trusted in Christ, what a great time to do that. What a great time to say, I really want to live with hope. I want to know what it is to have my sins forgiven, to have the certainty of glory, to be in the presence of God and to hear him say, well done. And all you need to do is say, I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and I accept you as my savior. And at that very moment, God promises that your sins are forgiven, that it is finished. He's completed the work and you're a member of his family. And all of the promises that he makes to all of the believers are yours. Great and magnificent promises so that you can now live with hope, high hopes, You and I may not get our dream job. By the way, there is an end to the story that I started at the beginning. Five years after I graduated from Dallas Seminary, Bill Bryan, who was then the pastor of Grace Bible Church, who had officiated at Linda and I's wedding, sat down with me one day and said, would you like to become part of our staff? And I said, Bill, doing what? He said, I don't know yet, but... I think you would be a good addition to the staff. And that began my journey of full-time ministry, and here we are 40 years later. There's no way in my limited pipe dream ability I would have pictured being here 40 years after that started. But God fulfilled a hope and a dream We may not get our hopes fulfilled. We may not get our dream desired job. We may not find the mate that you really want. We may not have the children that we hoped for. We may not completely overcome a bad habit. We we may not be physically healed from an illness, but we can still live with high hopes, with joyful, peace-filled hope because hope is based on God's character the God of hope who makes promises and guarantees those promises and secures them with his son. So when doubt says you're a fool to believe, remember, God cannot lie. When doubt says you lose and life seems like a puzzle and the pieces are missing, God says you will overwhelmingly conquer and you will never, ever be separated from my love. When doubt says you're all alone, remember, God promises I will never leave you or forsake you, ever. Even in the midst of your darkness and even in the midst of your failures because our failures are never fatal because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he promises forgiveness. Therefore, live with high hopes. And you may not know the rest of the song that Frank Sinatra made famous a number of years ago. But it's about an ant 
who thinks he can take down the rubber tree plant. But everybody knows that an ant can't take down the rubber tree plant except for the ant because he has high hopes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the promises and guarantees that are ours. Thank you for your incredible, amazing love for us, the mercy that's been extended to us, the living hope that is ours because of what you have accomplished. Not because we deserved it, but because of who you are and what you've done. Father, we exalt you, we praise you, we wanna honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen.